1: Dressed, the history of fashion, is a production of Dressed Media. With over 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed the History
2: of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. The woven blankets, rugs, dresses, and tapestries of the Navajo or Diné people are some of the best known and most admired textiles in the entire world, and rightly so. Not only do they exemplify the highest expressions of the art form of weaving, they also are representative of an
1: incredibly rich spiritual and cultural practice that extends back thousands of years. However, as we will learn more about today, the history of Navajo weaving has historically been told from a non-Navajo perspective that centers around treating Navajo weavings purely as aesthetic objects. So this is why you often hear about first phase, second phase, third phase, chief blankets, for instance. But by treating these weavings in this way, scholars, collectors, curators have overwhelmingly ignored and dismissed the identity of the Diné creator. Very rarely, for instance, are historic Navajo textiles exhibited alongside the name of their maker, because as you know, April, that information was not considered important enough to document at the time the objects were collected. And of course, this is not unique to the Diné people's cultural property. So, Not only did they not document the creator, they also dismiss and ignore the Diné cultural knowledge ways and cosmologies that are central to really, truly understanding the object's significance.
2: And that is all changing thanks in no small part to today's guests. We are so pleased to welcome back to part two of our conversation on Navajo weaving, the authors, educators, and fifth-generation Navajo weavers, Linda Teller-Pete and Barbara Teller-Anellis. Linda and Barbara have been instrumental in quite literally rewriting the history and narrative surrounding Navajo weaving as exemplified by their integral role in the creation of the Bard Graduate Center in New York City's current exhibition on the world of Navajo weaving. That exhibition is called Shaped by the Loom, Weaving Worlds in the American Southwest. In this exhibition, historic blankets, garments, and rugs from the American Museum of Natural History are exhibited right alongside contemporary works by Danae Weavers and also
1: visual artists, including Barbara and Linda. And we will hear more about that today, as well as from the exhibition curator who they worked closely with, Hadley Jensen. But first, I wanted to ask Barbara and Linda about their groundbreaking books and why it is so important for Navajo weavers to be writing their own histories. So let's jump back into our conversation. So I want to mention this because both of your books, Spider Woman's Children, is the first book on Navajo weaving written by Navajo women, Mm -hmm. which is incredible when you think about how many books have been written about Navajo weaving historically? Uh, And same with How to Weave a Rug, or How to Weave a Navajo Rug is the first how-to guide written by Navajo weavers. Both of these books have been written by yourselves. So I'd love if you could just talk a little bit about why this is so significant and how it changes the ways that Navajo weaving history has typically been told. Our history has been distorted.
3: Our history has been omitted. It has been just Erased. When Barbara and I visit a lot of museums and do consult work, we encounter textiles with no name, no face. You know, everything is just unknown. And it is true that in our history, it, it's a harsh history. When we learn how to weave... Um, A lot of the books, they say that uh, Navajo people are interlopers. They interlope through the Southwest that we copied uh, weaving from the Spanish or our Pueblo neighbors. And, you know, because we're all in the Southwest and we live in proximity to where the Spanish settled, the, the colonial settled, and the, um, the our Pueblo neighbors, and there was a lot of intermarriage. There was also marketplaces to where there was an exchange of goods. So anytime you are in a market area, there's going to be an overlap of cultural things. And when people say the Navajos learn how to weave from the Spanish, well, 14-something, there was a, a small fragment of a Navajo dress that was, was discovered in one of the caves in Canyon de And it was carbon dated back to the 1400s. That predates the Spanish. The Spanish did not uh, arrive and bring their sheep until 1542. And that debunks it. But that doesn't stop a lot of authors, a lot of textile scholars from repeating this misinformation. And that's where they do a disservice to us, uh, Navajo people, Navajo weavers, especially. Navajo weavers were a commodity back in those days because they were kidnapped. They were kidnapped for slavery. And as the Spanish brought their huge floor looms, you know the, the woven textiles that were in it were loose. And their designs were the serrated diamonds. Valero Star, and so a lot of Navajo weavers that were kidnapped were sold on the auction block, and colonials bought them. Spanish households, Mexican households, bought slaves, and they were brought in to unweave those huge weavings and reweave them Navajo styles. That's how we got those designs in our repertoire of weavings that came from slavery. Uh, our Navajo dress: the mostly black, the red, uh, the indigo, the dark brown. Uh, Navajo dresses, those dresses were created in response to the slavery period. And they're dark. And so that it encouraged the um, the wearer to escape in the middle of the night. And on most of those dresses, um, you have like maybe four bands up on the bodice and maybe four bands on the skirt part. And that was to um, protect the wearer, but also to remind the wearer that they need to be home within our four sacred mountains and it encouraged them to return home. And so the dress was created in response to the slavery period. And a lot of that has been softened softened by writers where they say, oh yeah, there was uh, servants um, and these servants were baptized and they were absorbed into the families. No, they weren't, (laughs) they were slaves. And so there's a lot of tiptoeing that happens around that period of time. And also a lot of traders that set up their trading posts. You know, after Bosco Redondo, when the Navajos were were marched off to prison camp and they came back in 1868, after we signed the treaty, 271 trading posts popped up around the Navajo Nation and all of them dealt with rugs, all of them dealt with silver, pottery, baskets, all the arts. They didn't champion a lot of us. Uh, Very few traders champion people or artists. A lot more exploited, um, more so than anything. And so it was as recent as 1973 when the FCC came in and said it's illegal for the training post to be charging Navajo weavers 400% on their credit accounts because they live from rug to rug. They would make a rug, bring it to the training post get a cardboard box of food, get maybe $5 written off their credit account and then given $10 in cash. And then it was off to the next rug and they never could get out of this poverty. These harsh histories have been embedded in our memories, in our the generational trauma of our mothers and our grandmothers, and it's still being carried through. And so Barbara and I really want people to know the truth about how Navajo weavers were treated.
1: Yeah, and something that, Shaped by the Loom Weaving Worlds in the American Southwest, this exhibition at Bard that you both consulted on, is actively trying to combat as well, right? Is the way that... Navajo weaving has been written about historically by non Navajo, has worked to privilege the object, right? You always hear about the three phases and this is more valuable than this, etc. But it actively erases the maker and the culture behind the object, right? Um, and so, you obviously, by writing these books and by working and by consulting on these exhibitions and by creating are actively combating that long history. And something that I found really moving too was, Barbara, you have artwork featured in the exhibition. I think you both do. Um, But Barbara, your contemporary chief set miniatures from around, I think, circa 2005, is a commentary in some ways about that erasure and that idea of authorless objects in museums. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, back in, see, 1999, 1998, I can't remember. My kids were still like in high school and junior high and um, they wanted to go see the Van Gogh exhibit in Los Angeles at the uh, LA County Museum. And, And so we made a plan to, you know, go to... California and do the museum and maybe take them to the beach and maybe even Disneyland, we have enough money, you know? <laughs> and, um, so, um, we're, my kids are very excited, especially my, my, my daughter, and she was a real Van Gogh fan. And so we got there at the museum and they, um, we're all lined up by, by time, you know, because they give you a time. To go in and see the exhibit and then you know they give you these little headphones and so we're waiting in line and i noticed that right across the van gogh exhibit was um southwest museum and they had a collection of navajo weavings you know on display and i told my kids let's go over there you know i don't don't really want to be (laughs) you know part of this i just want to go over here you know and they're like no we we travel so much and we want to see this and and so we went through the whole exhibit and in the headphones they had people telling you that he had written a letter to his brother about this painting and what it meant and where he was and how he was feeling you know just everything he was doing and feeling whatever he wrote it down and he sent the letter to his brother and somebody collected all of that and put it with the with the the paintings and it was really interesting and then you saw dates you know you saw the dates of when he he did it and what inspired him to to paint on this is van Gogh, right this is van Gogh. Mm-hmm. and so we were done afterwards and i told my kids let's go over here you know let's go i want to see the weavings so we walked in and they're like beautiful paint weavings like before bosco after bosco weavings everywhere, you know, and and we were walking around and then my daughter goes, You know, mom, he goes, they don't have stories. They don't have names. Who who are these weavers? And where did they where did they come from? Why did they weave what they wove? You know, and so we're all questioning the exhibit and stuff. And my son, you know, he was really young at the time. And he was like, there should be something here. There should there should be a story here, you know. So I said, okay, well, let me let me tell you a story. I go, there's this young, beautiful Navajo woman. She lived in the Hogan with her husband and her two children. And the vision I had was my grandmother, Nellie Teller, in the middle of White Rock, in the middle of nowhere. And I said, she wakes up every morning, she walks to the edge of the cliff, and she sings, she sings her songs, and she says her prayers. And then she stops by the watering hole, and she fills up her bucket, and she comes back to the hogan. And she has little baby lambs that are sitting outside the um, the hogan that she gives um, the water to and, and food, you know, because yeah you know, my grandma loved those little baby lambs. She had a whole bunch <laughs> you know, that she used to take care of. And so I envisioned that, and I told that story. And I said, and then she comes back in and she makes breakfast for her children, and she waits for her husband to come home because he had he had already been up early, four or five in the morning. he took the sheep out for their first grazing and then the sheep when the she he brings the sheep back and she has breakfast ready for them and so they eat breakfast and she sends the kids off to where they need to be and then she sits in front of her loom and she says her prayers and she sings her song and before she starts weaving you know and she envisions good life for herself good life for her kids good life for her husband and she hopes that she puts all her hopes and dreams into her work, and that someday somebody will see that and appreciate that. And I go, and that's what you see here. See all these weavings that are hanging here, they all tell a story, but nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to see it because they don't take the time, you know. But if you stand in front of a, a weaving long enough, it's going to start speaking to you, you know. And so afterwards, we went. I went to the, the curator that was there, and I asked her how many weavings are hanging in this an exhibit. And she goes, 75. And I go, 75 weavers. And not one of them has a face here. Not one of them has a story or a name. You know, and it really bothered me. And we got back to the car, and I'm just I had a lot of anger in me. I probably wouldn't have had that if I didn't see the Van Gogh exhibit and how that was really taken care of, how people cherished his work and, you know, made a point to preserve everything, whereas my ancestors weren't treated that way. So we went to the beach and I couldn't enjoy myself because I was still so angry. And then my ex-husband said, if you're that angry, you should do something. You're their voice now. You should speak for them and do something. You know, you can't just sit here and be angry and practically ruin our vacation. (laughs) And, And you need to go, you need to figure something out to express your anger and to honor these women. And right there, it popped in my head. I'm going to do 75 weavings. At that time, I was going to do like 75 big weavings. And to, and then later on, I thought most of the weavings in there were first, second, third phase. you know. And I thought, instead of doing big ones, why not small ones? And just so they're recognized. I started making them. I started telling people a story of why I'm doing this. And I went up to 24 sets. You know, and I have one set left that I'm I'm uh, hanging on to, and I want to m- make sure that it has meaning behind it before I release it. You know, and I think uh, I found exhibit that I w- You know, that I'm going to be making this piece for, and um, my number twenty five set has been uh, spoken for. It's spoken for. It's with the chicago art institute yeah a lot of the 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 pieces are in private homes a lot of um, some of them are in museums and stuff and even though my name is on them for me it's the name of my ancestors that have woven those pieces and took me a long time for me to get over that anger you know and then so I one time made this remark to my sister. I go, a hundred years from now, we're going to be the old weavers. But our weaving in museums are going to have names, stories, photos, maybe letters of why we wove, what we wove. And, you know, we're going to be the Van Goghs in a hundred years.
1: When you created something so beautiful and something that's going to last the test of time For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the fillet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba 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 ba.
1: As you just mentioned, you both have been so instrumental in bringing not only the true history to light from the Navajo perspective, but also bringing names to these these pieces of art and this history that will live on forever. And and I think shaped by the loom is such an amazing example of that and sets such a high precedent for how museums should create these exhibitions moving forward because it was in direct consultation with you. Can you talk a little bit more about your role in bringing that exhibition to life and kind of how it's different from other exhibitions Sure. Uh, in the past?
3: Um, well, first of all, I'd like to say that Barbara first started working with Museum Personnel probably in the 80s, and I sort of flittered in and out of that realm because uh, my life wasn't really about being a Navajo weaver. I I had gone through college, got my degree, and I said, "Oh, I'm not weaving anymore. I'm going to take a job," which I did. And um, so there were times that I would join Barbara on her different um, uh, consultations and stuff. And so I really I, I have to admire how you know she may seem quiet, but when she talked, people listened. And but back in those days, I think the curators that were there, uh, I don't want to speak badly about them. But you know, they were considered the textile scholars and experts and people listened to them. And a lot of the weavers that consulted, basically, we were just props to show that, you know, we were consulted, but not really. And Throughout these years, there have been some textile scholars that we work with that have been very generous in letting us speak our truths. And it started with Dr. Ann Hedlund, um, who was the head of the Gloria Ross Tapestry Center on the campus of University of Arizona. She worked for the Arizona State Museum, but she also headed the Gloria Ross Tapestry Center. So we started working with her grad students, and some of those grad students are now curators. And so we 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 you know we helped them with their master's theses and everything, and we uh, started teaching classes. And in one of our classes that we taught at the Idlewell um, School of Arts in California, in walked in a really young lady who was in her doctoral work, and her name was Hadley Jensen. So she took a a class from us. And, you know, as curators go, they do need to know the process of weaving, I think, to really understand it. And so, you know, we taught Hadley how to weave. And so from then on, you know, we have been friends with her, she consults with us. And and so when she became a postdoctoral student at the Bard Graduate Center, and also working at uh, AMNH, which is American Museum of Natural History in New York. And so she started doing her postdoctoral work there. And she started working with a particular collection. And so she called on us And Barbara and I had just finished up a class in New Hampshire. And so we just kind of went up to Manchester and flew over to New York and then met with her and and Hadley and her team, they pulled out all these Navajo textiles. And we were amazed that this was a a, a collection from the 1930s that had never been seen before, never been exhibited. And so we went through, we saw a lot of textiles that were not finished but taken off the loom and, you know, Hadley and her team were like, I wonder why it's like this. Barbara and I knew, we knew because, you know, those were the times when the Navajos were nomadic and also being chased by, you know, the army and whomever, um, the raiders. And so, you know, a lot of those warps were probably just kind of taken off the loom and rolled up. And I don't, you know, whatever happens to the weaver, but those things were collected and then later on sold in collections to museums. And so we're saying these came from these times when weavers were on the run. And we saw a lot of slave blankets. We recognize them as slave blankets. And one thing about working with um, a young curator whom you have taught is that she is much more interested in hearing our voices and not, you know, we're not being treated as props anymore, that we have an equal uh input. You know, we learned a lot from, from Hadley, and I believe she learned a lot from us. So with the collection that we worked on, you know, we paired it with contemporary pieces and the h- historic pieces just to give the museum goer the the idea that the traditional way of weaving is still here, even in our modern times, and we're continuing this journey, but now we also have uh, to speak for the ancestors whom, you know, their voices were lost, their faces were lost, and so it's taking younger curators like Hadley and, you know, all the, the young curators that we're working with now. It's leveling the playing field, I should say. And so we are grateful for that because for a lot of years, we weren't treated like that. And I, and I think... And then are more
0: open to um, hearing our ideas and really listening to yeah. our stories.
3: Yes. And then one in particular thing about museum collections is that when they collected Navajo dresses... A lot of them took them apart and they were sold as different panels because the dressmaker and as Navajo weavers, we cannot weave our own dress. Our dresses have to be woven by a different weaver. And that's just one of the protocols. And people always say, well, why? So (laughs) it's just been like that for many, many years. And so when these people that wanted to make money off of Navajo weaving, they would take apart the dresses, and they would sell them to different museums. And we know that the ancestors prayers, the weavers prayer for this dress to remain as a whole, were answered because a lot of those panels came back together, with oh, wow. even even though they were sold apart. And so we we saw some pieces um, in the collection that Hadley was showing us. And one of the things that we always say is that conservation, please put the dress back together because that was how it was meant to be. Prior to Hadley being our curator, that would have never been done because these they never listened to the weavers. And now with this new generation, um, Hadley's generation—they know the importance of our voices. They know that we still honor the traditions that the ancestor weavers have done, and they're—they're they're letting us write our own labels. We're doing panel labels. We're doing uh, writing for the catalogs that has never been done before, and so times are changing, and it's going to take people like Hadley to open up a whole new world for us to become our own scholars. And also, there are a lot more Native Americans entering the museum world uh, as curators, as experts in different, you know, art forms. And so the world is going to change. And we're no longer going to be just props.
0: We're not letting other people speak for us. We speak for ourselves now.
1: And it's such a beautiful exhibition. Congratulations. And our listeners will be so pleased because if you cannot make it to New York, like myself, there is a beautiful online version of this exhibition. And, you know, there's videos and recordings and it's really kind of an immersive experience and it's so well done and so beautiful in so many ways. Um, you both have been so generous with your time today. Thank you so much. Before I let you go, I just wanted to let our listeners know, if, as you have mentioned, that you both teach classes. Yes. So if anyone wants to take a class with you, can you tell people how they can find you and maybe learn more about your work and uh, your, your offerings? Sure. Uh, b- before we get
3: into that, I, I want to say that Shape by the Loom is going to be a traveling exhibit. It's going to oh, travel fantastic. to it's going to travel to the Finmore um, uh, in Cooperstown, New York, after the exhibit at the Bard is going to close on July 9th, and then it's going to travel up to the FinMore. And I think, I believe the exhibition is going to be up for a year. And after that, it will travel to the Textile Museum in Washington, D.C., and then maybe a third venue somewhere. So it's hopefully a lot of people get a chance to see it. If not online, you know, um, plan a visit to one of those museums and see it because the museums that are going to sponsor it is, they're going to display their own textiles as well. So it won't be like what you see at the Bard and Barbara and I um, have been tagged for programming at all these different openings. So, you know, look out for that. And uh, yeah, we're, we're so excited. And uh, actually uh, I'm working with Hadley on another museum uh, exhibition and it's called horizons weaving between the lines. And it's going to be in Santa Fe at the museum of Indian arts and culture. Oh, wonderful. And That's going to open July 16th. Uh, 2023, and so we're going to have programming and a lot of stuff. So look out for that. We're going to po- post a lot of that on our our website, and as as our um, classes are also advertised on our website. Our website is Rugweavers. Make sure the S is there.com. and you can see our schedule. Yeah, uh, before COVID, Barbara and I had been teaching for 22 years. And then, you know, when COVID happened, we sort of, the Heard Museum came to us to ask us to do some online programming, online classes, which we did. And so at first we weren't sure how the online classes were gonna work, but it worked out great. Um, but we're back to our in-person classes now. And we just finished an all Navajo class at the Heard Museum um, in the first week of May. Now we are on to the Idawell School of Arts where Barbara got her start as a weaving teacher. What, about 20, 25 years ago, 26, some, something like that? I started in 1998. And I didn't come along until 2004 or something. But she was teaching there with my mom, with our mom. And our mom was too polite to correct, you know, students. So Barbara said, you got to come and help me. And I kept telling her, I'm barely reteaching myself. How can I be a teacher? Um, But, you know, it it, it worked out. And so we started out, when we started classes, we only had a one page handout. And that handout grew to 25 pages. And that turned into our book, How to Weave a Navajo Rug and Other Lessons from Spider-Woman. And in our classes, we do like three days, four days, five days. And this year, Idlewell, um has turned into a three-week weaving class. Yeah, so we have wow. beginning week, we have intermediate, and then we have advanced. We only do warping the second week. The second week is billed as Native American week at Idlewell. So they bring in a lot of Native speakers, lecturers, presenters, uh, food tastings, entertainment, you know, it's it's all things Native American. And Idawell offers scholarships for Navajo students as well. And so um, they just have to pay for their transportation to come see us. And then we work with them. And uh, one of the things that Barbara and I always pride ourselves on is when we're working with scholarships, we ask that two members of a family apply as a team. Because if you teach one person, they may do it for a while, but then not do it again. But if you teach two people, they encourage each other, inspire and motivate each other to keep weaving. And one person may remember some of the lessons and help each other. And so Idlewild has been very instrumental in allowing us to move along those goals. And we are turning some of our students into teachers. And we're we're mentoring them. This year we have a class at Danae College in Salie, Arizona. They have a program called NCAP, which stands for Navajo Cultural Arts Program. And they off they develop a bachelor's program for weavers. They also have a bachelor's program for silversmithing, for pottery, for uh, moccasin making. So they're concentrating on traditional arts and they want us to come and teach their students how to weave. And it's not, it's not just Barbara and me who are doing this. There are a lot of other Navajo teachers out there. And so we always tell our students, you know, Take as many classes as you as you want from us and from other Navajo teachers. But one thing is don't go in there and say, well, that's not what my teacher said. You know, we said, be open, be open to all the lessons and then figure out what works for you. And you can use that process. And we're so proud that some of our students are now in art markets selling their work. Um, One student came in and said, I have four goals. I want to learn how to weave. I want to teach my children. I want to become a teacher, and I want to work at a museum where there are Navajo textiles. You know, it took her 13 years, but she has accomplished all that. And so, you know, we are uh, mentoring a lot of young Navajos, and some of them aren't even young. I mean, they they tell us that they're going to give us young people to teach. When we get to our classroom, they're age 77. <laughs> And you know, and they're retiring from jobs in New York and Chicago and Washington, DC, and they want to come home in retirement and relearn their arts. And so we've been blessed by um a lot of people who support what we do. And Hadley is one of those people. Um, there, you know, we're we're engaged with museums. We have a lot of um, consultation work that we do, and the books that we have written have been due to Barbara meeting the publisher in Peru, of all places. The journey of Navajo weaving is never going to stop, you know, and and Barbara and I are just a small piece of that journey.
2: Linda. Barbara, thank you so much for being here and sharing with us so many wonderful insights into your cultural heritage and weaving practices. You know, as Linda said, you can learn more about their work and find out when and where you can join one of their classes on their website, which is NavajoRugWeavers.com. And that is
1: N-A-V-A-J-O, Rug Weavers. That's Weavers with an S.com. And you have just a few more days to see the exhibition, Shaped by the Loom, which is open at Bard until July 9th. But if you cannot make it, Dress listeners, do not despair, because the museum has done a phenomenal job creating an online version of the exhibition. And it's absolutely wonderful. It centers various written and audio perspectives from contemporary Navajo weavers, including Barbara and Linda. And we will, of course, provide a link in our show notes to that for you. And before we let you go, I am pleased to share a short interview I did with exhibition curator Hadley Jensen about the exhibition itself. Enjoy! Hadley, welcome to Dressed. I am so glad that you are joining me today. Thank you, Cassidy.
4: I'm so happy to be here with you.
1: Yeah, and can you just do a brief introduction for our listeners about who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm
4: an anthropologist and curator, currently based in Santa Fe. And my specialty is in Native North American art um, with a particular focus in textiles.
1: Which is of course why we are talking to you today because you curated this incredible exhibition Shaped by the Loom, Weaving Worlds and the American Southwest. I've just had a wonderful conversation with Barbara and Linda, who our listeners will now know, consulted on this exhibition with you for many, many years. And I'm hoping you can kind of tell us a little bit more about the exhibition, perhaps starting with the inspiration behind its creation.
4: I'm happy to. So it has been a long process of development that began in 2018. And I had a postdoctoral fellowship in Museum Anthropology. And that was a joint appointment between Bard Graduate Center and the American Museum of Natural History. And so I had the opportunity to work in the AMNH's anthropology collections and specifically their textile collections. So this began as an opportunity to exhibit a historic collection of Dené weavings. And Linda and Barbara have been such an important part of the process from the beginning. You know, I should say that I, I first connected with Linda and Barbara because I took their Navajo weaving workshop at Idlewild Arts, I think back in 20, maybe 2016. And I was working on my dissertation at the time at Bard Graduate Center and knew that I really needed to have a more embodied understanding of what I was researching and writing about and thinking about. And so that workshop was so transformative in just being able to learn from fifth generation textile artists. And I started thinking about this relationship Um, between thinking and making that guides the practice of Navajo weaving. And so when this this exhibition opportunity came around, it seemed like a great chance to do something different. Um, There have been so many exhibits and publications related to Navajo weaving. For me personally, as a curator, it was an exciting opportunity to to think about how to place contemporary perspectives and voices um, in conversation with such an important historic museum collection.
1: And when you say contemporary voices, you're speaking about contemporary Navajo Diné voices, correct?
4: Yes. So contemporary Diné perspectives. It's been important to really um, prioritize those perspectives throughout the development of the project um, through collections visits at AMNH, um, thinking about exhibition layout and design interpretation, and for visitors who have have seen the exhibition in person, there are many artist-authored labels as a way to to center those perspectives in relation to, to both historical and contemporary works.
1: And can you tell us more about kind of the thesis of the exhibition, what visitors could expect to see if they went to the exhibition and how it's kind of organized? So Shaped by the Loom is not really
4: about one singular idea or concept. I really think think about curatorial work as a mode of storytelling in space. And for this exhibition, I think it's it's more of an invitation to engage with indigenous aesthetics and languages of making related to Navajo weaving. And so through the themes of the exhibition, we've framed Navajo weaving as an art form, but also as a cultural practice and a lived experience.
1: Which is not something that you have typically, one would have typically seen with an exhibition of Diné textiles historically, right? Can you talk a little bit about maybe how this is different than say past exhibitions that really privileged the object, but disconnected it from the the lived culture that it was made in, and it continues to be a part of?
4: That's such a great question, because, of course, you're confined by the gallery, by the space you have, by the budget, and you have to work within these parameters. But at the same time, there was a lot of creative freedom offered at Bard Graduate Center in particular. Um, And they were very supportive of the vision behind this this project. And so I think a primary goal has been to to offer a greater cultural context, a larger cultural context um, for understanding Navajo weaving and its social and cultural significance. And... Linda and Barbara have been so helpful in, I think, allowing visitors to really see the artist behind the art. Often in, in museum collections, you have incredible historical items that don't have any documentation about the artist or maker, but there's so much that you can learn by looking at a piece especially with a weaver. And so through our collections visits, um, they've also helped me to to understand more about the weaver's expertise when it comes to material knowledge, um, knowledge about design elements and techniques. And um, I hope that some of those things are, are visualized in the gallery as well.
1: Yeah, and of course, I unfortunately will not make it to New York to see the exhibition before it closes. And many of our listeners will not be able to as well. But you have this fantastic online element, which is just incredible. And it's really detailed. And I think it gives us an idea of how the exhibition maybe is organized, but you go into the exhibition online and you have homeland creation cosmology. So learning about Dene culture and the Dene people and learning about the role of ecology and the creation of all of the different elements that go into weaving, the dyeing and coloring. And then you have personal essays from people like Linda. And uh, you also talk about the different design elements, techniques and technologies. And within each of these categories are objects featured within the exhibition. And just you really have done such an incredible job. And for people like me who can't make it to New York, it's so important to have these online elements. And before I let you go, I, I did have a question for you because something Linda and I and Barbara and I spoke about was really the problematic legacy of museums. Obviously, you're an anthropologist. Anthropology itself comes with a long problematic history, right? Of, you know, this kind of concept of stealing cultural property from indigenous groups, actively erasing the makers from those collections because that wasn't what was privileged at the time that they were, those artifacts were being collected. And then of course, how museums have just interacted with indigenous people historically, and even still today. And Barbara and Linda both talked about being used as props by museums, for instance, who really didn't take the incorporation of their voices or expertise or their perspective seriously, but they also spoke about how different that experience was with you specifically. And this exhibition is clearly an example of the way that things can change and things should change moving forward. And I really think that you've set an important precedent about how museums should interact with their music, their collections and privilege indigenous voices moving forward. I'm hoping you can talk to us just a little bit more about why that's significant and important today.
4: I have also learned a lot from this process and it's really been about relationship building and this has now been a five-year project, and I couldn't have imagined it unfolding in any other way. Um, For me as a non-Native curator, being able to prioritize the voices and perspectives of Diné weavers and visual artists has been fundamental to, to kind of the curatorial vision Behind the project. And in addition to Linda and Barbara, we've also been working with a younger generation of fiber artists and weavers Tyrell Tapaha and Kevin Aspis. And we're honored to be able to include their work in the exhibition as well. And Raphael Begay, who's a Dene photographer, and Darby Raymond Overstreet. Um, who is a, a Diné digital artist and printmaker, and we were also thinking about the kind of contemporary expressions of Navajo weaving and how the visual language of weaving has has found its way into um, a variety of media. So we also worked with Connor Chi, um, who's a, a Diné pianist and composer, and commissioned a soundscape. For shaped by the loom, which you can also hear online, I think that shaped by the loom has has also been an opportunity to re- reframe more conventional categories to, to be more reflective of Ghanai ways of, of thinking about weaving. I hope that this, in in some small small way, can be a model for thinking about. Um, the potential of of collaborative exhibition-making.
1: Absolutely. And I think you can really see, too, the ways that incorporating Indigenous voices and perspectives in this way transforms the experience um, for the viewer and transforms what that exhibition will be. Again, thank you so much for being here and sharing This exhibition with myself and our listeners. It's
4: been a pleasure. Thank you for your interest in the exhibition.
2: Well, that does it for us today. dress listeners, may you consider the rich histories and traditions of weaving that have informed many of the very items that might be in your closet next time you get dressed. Listeners, we are very pleased to be now offering an ad free subscription to the show for just $3 a month. Um, for less than a cup of coffee each month, you can support us and skip the ads. And actually, this is very helpful to us as as you know, podcasters that have just gone independent. It's a steady source and stream of income for us. If you are at all interested, please head over to the link in our show notes. That will give you the option to subscribe to exclusive content, which is the ad-free versions of the podcast. You can also find this option on our new website, which is www.dresshistory.com. There, you can find more about us, the show, listen to episodes, and check out our upcoming programming, including classes, upcoming fashion history tours, and so much more.
1: And as you know, we always love hearing from you. We are still catching up from our Paris trip. Um, so <laughs> please excuse our delay in writing you back. But we do try to write back to each and every one of you who email us at hello at dress And you can, of course, always direct messages on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast where you'll find images and reels accompany each week's episode. If you want to find the Instagram content specifically connected to this week's episodes, check out the hashtag dressed 304 and dressed 305. That's dressed and the number 304 and dressed 305. More dressed coming your way next week. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of Dressed Media.